Hey guys, just before we get started, I wanted to kind of put a swear warning because I realize I do in fact swear a lot and I just kind of want to make sure if any kitties are listening that uh, you should probably stop now if unless you're a mature child. And also I'd like to say, uh, sorry mom, <laughs> let's get started with the episode. Long may she reign. Presented to you by Aidan Fitzgerald. Oh, that pop-up winning was crisp. That was a good one. I'm so awesome. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Long May She Reign podcast. I'm Aiden. I'm your host for this podcast. So, I'm so sorry that this is going up so, so late. I <laughs> I had I had this episode recorded. I swear I did, but the audio file wouldn't upload, and I'm hoping that as I'm recording this, and when I upload this version again, it'll actually upload. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? I had to scrap an entire episode because my audio files just did not want to audio. They did not want to audio. So that sucks. I'm sorry. Um, and good news, guys, Taylor Swift is coming to Canada. Fuck yeah. Um... I got waitlisted, but I'm delusional, <laughs> so I'm, like, still under the impression I'm gonna get tickets. I mean, the, the show is, like, a year and a half away. Lots of shit could happen. She could add more dates, which means uh, other people could, like, sell their tickets if she goes closer to where they live. Um, <laughs> lots of things could happen. You know, I, I hope I get to go. I mean, I've... I've been a fan since since debut, which, I mean, isn't saying much. I was, like, five in 2006, and I was a little kindergartner, and I didn't understand much, but I knew, I knew that I loved the little blonde-haired lady from Pennsylvania who was a country music star, mostly because my mom was, like, really wanting to get me into country music at the time, and she, j- she just didn't know a way to do it, because a lot of country music stars are old, and that doesn't appeal to a five-year-old, but... Then, like, 16-year-old Taylor Swift rocks up, and suddenly I'm like, new person, I love her. (laughs) So, uh, pray for me. Send all all your luck and prayers, unless, of course, you're looking for tickets, too. Then I send, I send, hopefully, my luck towards you, and I hope you guys get tickets. Or if you've already been, I don't know if any Swifties listen to me. I really hope so. That'd be great. Uh, I hope you guys had a fun time, or in the future, I hope you guys get tickets. Okay, enough about that sure you guys don't really care. Today, we are talking about Sarah Winnemacaw. I've been practicing her last name for two weeks to make sure I got it right. I'm pretty sure Winnemacaw is the correct pronunciation of Sarah's last name. Now, you've probably never heard of Sarah Winnemacaw. I hadn't either. I happened to come across her just on like a random Google search. I've been, on this podcast, I've always strived to do hopefully as many women of color as I'm doing white women on the show. Um, so I'm always looking for really interesting women of color to do on the show. And Sarah Winnemacaw came up in one of my Google searches and I was, and I was just fed by her. Um, I'd never heard of her tried the, the pay people also think, think I'm pronouncing that right. I genuinely apologize. Genuinely apologize. Um, and also, she was, like, the first Native American women, American women to write a full length, which is, like, really cool. Like, really cool. She was a re- activist for her people. And she was kind of bo- born in this really, in- really interesting time 
I say interesting, awful time, awful time for Native Americans who are living out west. Because when Sarah's born, born, the Americans are fucking west for for fools and settlement, and that really did disrupt disrupts the life of American people who have been been living there tens of thousands of years of years. And her family's kind of approach to these coming down there is really to me, and I can't wait. And I can't wait. So I hope you guys are excited. Let's get into it. Okay, so Sarah Winnemacaw was born as Tokmaton sometime in the year 1844 in modern western Nevada to Chief Winnemacaw and his wife, Tubatone. I think I pronounced that right. I'm sorry if I didn't. Now, since we don't know much about when she was born, let's talk about her indigenous name, Tokmaton, because the origin and history behind her name is very, very beautiful, and I really like the plant she's named after. Now, Chakmatone translates to shell flower in the Paiute language, which refers to a species of flower uh, that I'm going to try and say phonetically, and I'm sorry if I don't get this right. Not so chalone. Not so chalone, actually. <laughs> anyway, uh, this flower is native to Western America and kind of looks like a little, little turtle, like saying hello from its shell, you know? And, you know, thus the name shell flower because it looks like a turtle kind of sticking its head out of uh, its shell. Um, of course, she also had her English name, Sarah, and using a European naming convention, she took her father's first name as her last name, kind of like how uh, people with the last name Johnson at some point had an ancestor named John, you know? <laughs> uh, but diving into the traditional name her parents chose for her is also a really important part of her story because of all the work she put into Indigenous activism and her culture is just really wonderful. So uh, let's talk a bit about her parents and their respective cultures. So despite the fact that our girl Sarah is famously known for being a member of the Paiute tribe, in reality, both of her parents were not actually like ethnically Paiute, uh, well, for the most part. Her dad was actually born as a member of the Shoshone tribe. Her dad, Winnemacaw the Younger, also known as Badface, I fucking love that nickname, it's my favorite nickname ever, was born into the Shoshone tribe, which have traditionally occupied several regions of the north and southwest of the United States from Idaho to northern Nevada and Utah. Now, we've actually talked about the Shoshone tribe on the show before because our favorite tracker and guide, Sacagawea, was also born into the Shoshone tribe. So if you listen to that episode, you know a bit about the tribe already, but if you don't, here's a quick rundown on some important things about the Shoshone that I have learned. The Shoshone have been known by many names, but they are often called the Grass House People because apparently their name translates to Tall Grass. And they also made their homes out of the tall grass that grew near them. I was also looking at some of their traditional clothing, and the beadwork is fucking gorgeous. Guys, I have, like, such a soft spot for just, like, really well-made clothing, especially really well-made historical clothing. It so much fun. And, you know, I love getting to learn about the Shoshone every time they come up because they're just, they're just a fascinating tribe. Anyway, uh, even though Sarah's dad was born into the Shoshone, he fully immersed himself in Paiute culture when he arrived in Paiute territory. And honestly, his identity as Shoshone has been kind of downplayed by Sarah in her writings about him, because at the time she was writing, the Shoshone had a really bad reputation for being warlike and violent, probably because all the settlers were coming in and stealing their land. Um, so Sarah was probably just trying to keep him away from that bad reputation to not make her and her family look bad and keep him closer to his Paiute identity uh, because the Paiutes had a better reputation of being peaceful towards settlers. 
Um, anyway, we're not sure whether Mr. Badface, uh, sorry, when Mr. Badface comes on the paid scene, but he was officially adopted into the tribe when he married Sarah's mom. Now, Sarah's dad has a very interesting legacy as a Paiute chief because we can't be sure how influential influential he was. I'm sorry. Most of what we know about his influence is told to us by Sarah, who is probably going to be pretty biased because it's her dad. Uh, the legends we hear about him paint him as this like wise dad and leader who saw to it that his tribe had, uh, and I quote, plenty of good food to eat, nice furs and skins to wear, and handsome teepees or wigwams for their families to live in. And that's a, that's a quote from Sarah's writing about him. Now, whatever you believe about how influential he was, he was still a very important person in Paiute politics and would be a huge influence to Sarah growing up. As for Sarah's mom, we don't know too much about her. We know her name was Tubitoni and that she was the daughter of old chief Truckee, who would later become famous for his friendly interactions with white settlers and his belief that Native Americans and white settlers could learn a lot from one another. Um, Chief Truckee interacted with many different expeditions by American explorers, and he actually helped American troops in the Mexican-American War, which won most of modern most of the modern-day Southwest America for the United States, and also set into motion a huge flock of American settlers making their way west once they got all that land. Now, the funny thing about Sarah's maternal grandfather is that he also wasn't born into the Paiute tribe. He was also born into the Shoshone tribe and became Paiute through marriage. So there's a lot of parallels between Sarah's dad and grandfather. But I really wish we did know more um, about Sarah's mom. So that sucks. Uh, but I will talk a bit more about uh, her later because something happens with Sarah's mom that's like kind of really important to Sarah's story. So we'll t we'll talk about that later. But I I'm curious what the what the phenomenon here is with Shoshone men marrying into the Paiute tribe. Like why are they why are they leaving? What, what's up with that? Why why do they not want to be Shoshone? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, uh, let's talk a bit about. Uh, Paiute history. Now, the Paiutes trace their origin to the story of Tibbutz, the wise wolf, who decided to carve many different peoples out of sticks. His plan was to scatter them evenly around the earth so that everyone would have a good place to live. But Tibbutz had a tricky younger brother, the coyote. The coyote cut open the sack where the sticks were, and people fell out in bunches all over the world. The people who had been scattered were angry at what happened to them, and this is why other people always fought. That's how the Paiutes explained it. Now, the people left in the sack were the southern Paiute people. Tibbutz blessed them and put them in the very best place, and that is our Paiute origin story. I like that. It's nice. Um, in terms of their non-mythological history, it's believed that the Paiute tribe arrived in their traditional lands around the year 1000 AD. Um, their traditional territory consists of over uh, 30 acres and stretches from about Southern California, Southern Nevada, and uh, South Central Utah, also Northern Arizona. They practiced a semi-nomadic lifestyle that had them moving throughout their huge territory based on seasonal need. Um, in the 1500s, the Spanish showed up. Oh no, you never expect the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Anyway, the Spanish started to show up in the area, and this started a very dark few centuries for the Paiutes, where the Spanish enslaved and exploited the hell out of them because they couldn't, they were Spanish. Um, their lands were constantly raided by the Spanish and some of their uh, indigenous allies for slaves, which kidnapped hundreds of thousands of young Paiute girls from the region. However, in good news, they never had to deal with the Spanish trying to settle in their territory because they weren't really interested in that because it was a desert. 
Um, by the time Sarah shows up on the scene in the 1840s, the Mormons are the first Europeans to try and make permanent settlements in Paiute territory. And at first, Paiutes, like Sarah's grandfather and parents, didn't really mind the Mormon presence at all. Uh, the Mormons actually provided great protection from other indigenous groups who had been slave raiding with Spanish for, the cent for centuries. But then the Mormons brought sickness, and things started going pretty much downhill from there, as, you know, things with Mormons do. Um, this set of events with the Mormons is kind of setting the stage for much of Sarah's life, and it's about to be a pretty bumpy ride, my friend. So grab a drink, your most comforting stuffed animal. We're going to talk about some really messed up shit. Let's get into it. Okay, so Sarah's earliest years would have been filled with a lot of fond memories and laughter, according to what I read from her writings. Her parents and siblings were all incredibly close, and she initially grew up in a very traditional Paiute way, where she would move around with the seasons. She spent her early childhood catching fish, collecting plants, and participating in festivities like the Festival of Flowers. Now here's a little snippet from Sarah's writings about the flower festival she attended as a child. Let me put on my best uh, <coughs> memoir voice. Many years ago, when my people were happier than they are now, they used to celebrate the Festival of Flowers in spring. Oh, with what eagerness we girls used to watch every spring for the time uh, would come when we could meet with our heart's delight the young men whom in a civilized life you'd call bows. We'd all go in company to see if the flowers we were named after were yet in bloom, for almost all the girls were named for flowers. All the girls who have flower names danced along together, and those who did not could not go together. That sounds so cute. I want to go to this festival of flowers. It sounds like, uh, sounds like fun. Now, as for Sarah's looks, we are lucky that photography was like a thing in her childhood. So we have plenty of pictures of her in both her traditional clothing and European style clothing. I personally think she's very pretty. She actually looks a lot like her dad, mostly. Uh, I mean, her dad really said copy and paste because she like stole his whole face. Like that's like a thing. She also has the most beautiful long hair you've ever fucking seen in your life. I, I wish I had hair that looked like that. I've been trying to grow up my hair longer than how I have it for a whole while, and it's just, it's not working, so I'm jealous. Now, as Sarah grew up, she would have come more and more contact with white settlers, and she would have quickly realized they weren't leaving because, unbeknownst to her, her territory was technically America now, and that wasn't going to be changing. Sarah would have learned to blend into both cultures with the help of her grandfather, who was basically the whole reason she had a European-style education. Sarah was first entrenched in European culture when she was six years old and joined her grandfather on a trip to California. At first, she was terrified about going so far away from home, but when she got there, she actually really liked the luxuries of California. California had nice beds, sorry, beds in their hotels, uh pretty ornate chairs, uh, brightly colored dishes, and the food she was served in the hotel she stayed at was superb. You can really tell that these are the observations of a fucking six-year-old, because, like, who would, I don't know who else would notice stuff like this if they weren't six years old. Anyway, um, after this, at 13, she and her younger sister, Alma, were sent to Carson City, Nevada to live with Major Ormsby, a important settler in Nevada and a friend of her grandfather. Uh, Major Ormsby and his wife had a hotel and were looking for a companion for their daughter Lizzie, and Sarah's grandfather thought it might be a good way to get his granddaughter, granddaughters sorry, used to settlers because they'd be around them all the time in the hotel. In less than a year, Sarah learned to speak five friggin' languages while she was at the hotel, including, but not limited to, three indigenous dialects in the area and English and Spanish, which is so impressive for a 14-year-old girl. I mean, I know there's that, like... 
idea that when you're younger, you tend to absorb languages easier. So that's probably how she learned five languages in under a year. But that's still wildly impressive. Uh, Sarah was also one of the few Peyu people who could read and write perfectly in English, as could her entire family, siblings included. Uh, when Sarah was 16, her grandfather asked that on his deathbed, she and her younger sister be sent to a convent school in San Jose, California, so that they could get a proper, you know, ladies' education. But it was kind of a disaster in the making. Um, Sarah and her sister Alma were not allowed to be officially admitted to the school that they were attending. And even when they showed up to start classes, they were sent home after a few weeks because the parents of the other students said, and I quote, they didn't want their daughters to go to school with Indians, which is, uh, really racist um and so stupid but fucking typical it's the 1860s now after sarah and her sister uh left school some pretty big things happened that would change sarah's life forever um nevada officially became a state and her tribe was forced to change from their nomadic lifestyle and live on a reservation which is where sarah faced the full reality of how the american government treated indigenous people now, one of the first incidents to uh, spark conflict between Sarah's people and American settlers was in 1860 when two silver miners in the area kidnapped some Paiute girls and hurt and abused them because they could. So in retaliation, the Paiute people killed five settlers, including those two silver miners, and started the Pyramid Lake War between American settlers and the Paiute people. Now, by this time, Sarah's dad was officially the chief of the Paiute people, and like his father-in-law, Mr. Badface, wanted to have peaceful relations with white settlers. So he and his family basically went on like a road trip to try and promote the Paiute people as friends to American settlers. In her teenage years, Sarah would kind of become like an on-the-road performer and would go to opera houses with her dad and her sisters and basically, well, at first give lectures to people uh, about the Paiute and like do little skits, I guess, kind of like SNL, although I don't think they were meant to be funny um, or educational, I guess. Um, they styled themselves as the Paiute royal family, and tons of settlers came to their shows to see them. They wore really elaborate costumes in their performances, and people were just like, Woo! This is awesome! But it didn't really seem to matter, because the American government did not stop their aggression against them. Um, in 1865, the U.S. Nevada Cavalry had been randomly attacking different bands of the Paiute people to, uh, and I quote, Remind them who was in charge, you know? Um, now, while Sarah and her dad were away, the Nevada Cavalry attacked their village and basically murdered their whole tribe. Now, I'm going to talk about some pretty violent deaths for some of Sarah's family members. So, like, if you don't want to hear that, maybe skip ahead about a minute or so, because I'm going to start talking about that. Okay, I'm going now. Now, uh, Sarah's mother, stepmother, and one of her sisters, as well as her baby brother, were all at the camp when the Nevada Cavalry attacked, and it was a complete and total massacre. Sarah's mom and stepmom were shot in the head, and uh, as for Sarah's uh, little newborn baby brother, uh, he was literally murdered by... They chucked him into a campfire. They literally chucked a baby into a campfire. I can't say it anymore, like delicately in that that's exactly what they fucking did there was very very little mercy shown to any of the people at this camp the only member of sarah's family that was there and survived was her older sister mary who was nearly assaulted in the attack but ended up unfortunately dying that winter from the cold anyway so she went through a very traumatic experience and ended up dying anyway now two years after that she uh 
I'm she as in I mean Sarah, and the 480 surviving members of her band were moved to a military camp which became known as Fort McDermott on the Nevada-Oregon border. They sought protection from the U.S. Army against the Nevada volunteers who had hurt them. Now, in 1872, the federal government established a Malheur Reservation in eastern Oregon, which was designated by President Ulysses S. Grant for the northern Paiute and Bannock peoples in the area. Three bands, including Sarah's, moved there at the time. In 1875, Sarah and her brother Natchez, uh, his family and their father, moved there. Now, Sarah knew that no matter if she was friends with settlers and enemies with them, she would still get mistreated because of her race. So she decided to choose the, I guess, lesser of the two evils. Uh, she also knew that working with settlers would probably be better than working against them. So in an act of self-preservation, Sarah started working for the U.S. government as a translator and a scout. At 27, she began working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. She started acting as an advocate for her people and working closely with Bureau agents like Samuel Parrish, who Sarah actually really liked because he helped them plant crops that would support the people and establish a very well-managed agricultural program to feed the entire band. He also had a school built at the reservation, and Sarah became an assistant teacher. Now, overall, Samuel Parrish was very helpful uh, to Sarah in getting her people back on her feet, but also we're like, uh, he was a bureau agent like that whole um organization was intentionally trying to oppress ind indigenous people but samuel Parrish overall seems like he was one of the few people who actually gave a shit about the welfare of the indigenous people that he had been uh, asked to take care of so yay samuel Parrish, but also boo indian affairs if you know what i mean now, before we talk about Sarah's work in advocating for the Paiute people, let's briefly discuss uh, Sarah's two marriages, because she was married twice in her life. Um, <clears throat> so, Sarah's first marriage was to Edward Bartlett, a former first lieutenant in the Army, on uh, January 29, 1872, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, we don't know much about him other than that he was basically a giant asshole, and was really mean to her the entire time they were married, and left her penniless. So, she had to make gloves for a living until she got a divorce and was able to move back to Fort McDermott. Uh, Sarah's uh, second husband was a man by the name of Lewis Hopkins. Uh, she met him a few years later while she was teaching and translating for the U.S. Army. Um, I believe he was also former military, but at the time they met, he was an Indian Bureau agent. And from the little I read on him, he seems like he was a nice dude. She stayed married to him for the rest of her life, so she must have liked him a lot more than the first guy. Um, again, like, yeah, he seemed nice, but also boo in the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs. That kind of sucks. I really hope he was a nice person. Ugh. Now, pretty soon after her second and much better marriage than her first, uh, two major events happened that sparked Sarah's determination to let the whole country know about the plight of her people. The first of those events is the Bannock War. Now, Sarah's good friend Samuel Parrish was very suddenly replaced by a new Indian agent, William V. Reinhardt, who was nothing like Samuel Parrish. In short, Reinhardt was a giant piece of shit who felt like, uh, instead of helping the Paiute people grow and become independent, he wanted to keep them under uh, his and the government's thumb. Reinhardt would sell supplies intended to the Paiute people to local white settlers. Uh, much of the good land on the reservation was illegally expropriated by white settlers, which led to some Paiute and Bannock peoples to flee the area and attack small white settlements in search of new land, which started the Bannock War. 
Um, it's not clear how much involvement Sarah and her people had in the war, but despite the fact that Sarah worked as a scout and translator for the army and was well-liked, she and her people were once again forced to move uh, for something that wasn't their fault. Uh, this big move is our second major event. Sarah's people were moved to the Yakima Reservation in Washington Territory, and basically they were put in camps that kind of resemble concentration camps. Um, Sarah moved with her people to this reservation, as at the time she had an official job as a translator, which gave her uh, the privilege of actually not having to live directly on the reservation. Um, Despite not living there, she heard daily from her relatives about the poor treatment they received. Uh, the treatment of her people inspired Sarah to start lecturing about the hardships of her people, uh, much like the sketch performances she put on as a child. Uh, Sarah thought if she lectured and lobbied the American government, she might be able to help her people. Uh, during the winter of 1879-1880, she and her father and two of her other relatives visited Washington, D.C. to lobby for the release of the Paiute people from the Yakima Reservation. And good news, their lobbying intact worked. Uh, they gained permission from the Secretary of the Interior, Carl Schertz. Schertz? It's a funny last name. I don't know how to pronounce that. Anyway, for the Paiute people to be allowed to return to the Melher Reservation, where they were at least treated a little better. But unfortunately, they had to make their way back there themselves on their own dime, which was bad. But it was better than staying where they were. Um... Unfortunately for them, as they were making their preparations to start moving everyone to the old reservation, the government closed that reservation. So now they were stuck right back at square one. They didn't have anywhere to go because the reservation didn't exist anymore. Um, a few years after Sarah, Sarah married her second husband, she set off all around the Pacific coast to deliver talks about the hardships of her people, still hoping that they would be able to find them a better home. Her lectures gained the attention of the press, and she was called the Paiute Princess by local newspapers, which helped her spread more awareness about her cause. Eventually, she started to give talks in the East Coast, where she met the Peabody sisters, Elizabeth and Mary, two influential teachers and reformers who helped spread the word about Sarah's lectures, and also helped her collect materials for the book she wanted to write about her people. Sarah's husband, Lewis, was also helping Sarah with the research for her book, as he got special permission to get the material Sarah needed from the Library of Congress. Now, I've got to say points to Lewis for that, but he wasn't a perfect person. Uh, unfortunately, Lewis had a very crippling gambling addiction, which ate up his and Sarah's money, which sucks, because overall he seemed like he was very supportive and kind, but he was also an ex-soldier with a gambling addiction, which really sucks, and really, it really wasn't good for either of them. Um... In 1870, sorry, 1883, Sarah published her first book, Life Among the Paiutes, which at the time was the first ever autobiography written by a Native American woman to be published in the United States. Not to mention, she was also able to secure the copyright of her own book, so she was able to control all the money coming in from this book so that no one could cheat her out of royalties, which is awesome that she didn't lose out on any of the money from her own book, because that could have very easily happened. Um, in 1884, after brief Briefly lecturing in San Francisco, she returned to her homeland in Pyramid Lake and, with her brother, opened up a school for Native American children, which promoted Paiute culture, language, and gave kids a stellar uh, kind of mix of Paiute and European education. Um, it was called the Peabody Indian School and ran from 1884 to 1887 until it was unfortunately closed down by the American government. Um, all of Sarah's pupils were sent to so-called boarding schools, which are actually just residential schools in Colorado. Um, it's unfortunate she wasn't able to keep any of her students. 
Um, not too long after her school was shut down, her husband Lewis died of tuberculosis, leaving Sarah in a very bad financial state from his gambling addiction. So she moved in with her sister Elma and her husband in Idaho. Sarah would spend the next four years of her life living quietly with her favorite sister before dying of tuberculosis herself at age 47. My God, where do I even begin with Sarah's legacy? I, do, I really don't know. Her story is an incredibly tragic example of the hardships many Native American tribes went through as America brutally expanded west. But she did so much to try and help her people from these hardships. She took a job that gave her a pedestal to protect her people. She used her education to spread awareness about her people to white settlers. She wrote a whole freaking book, for God's sakes. That's really impressive. I know, I've tried to write a book. It's fucking hard. And even though many of her efforts were futile, she still did so much for Native American activism, and she is undoubtedly an activist that many Indigenous people should be proud of, regardless of what tribe you come from. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I will see you guys in two weeks with a brand new episode. Goodbye! Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions for topics, you can just DM me on Twitter at longmayshirain2. The N at the end of rain is replaced with a 2 instead. I'm also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and like a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on all those platforms. It really actually does help the show so much and it will help me grow my audience. So I would absolutely appreciate it if you you guys could do that. All right. Uh, bye.